Well, kia ora, hello and welcome to the Coast Vineyard Podcast. Whether you're a regular or a first-time listener, it's so good to have you listening in. We hope and pray that wherever you may find yourself at today, that the message that you're about to hear would be helpful for your journey of faith. So without further ado, let's get into this week's message. Well, good morning. Uh, when I was growing up in England... Uh, the church I was a part of ran an evangelism course, uh, like kind of a small group thing uh, that trained people to spread the gospel by knocking on doors and stopping people in the street. And the, uh, the opening line of the conversation was learned by heart, and it was, if you were going to die tonight, do you know where you would go? And this heaven or hell split road at the end of our life has become so entrenched in our Western uh, Christian thinking that sometimes hell can be used to scare people into God's love. Uh, And this is because the majority of both Christians and non-Christians have understood that hell within Christianity is uh, is a place of eternal torment and fire. Uh, But there actually isn't one uniform, all-agreed understanding of what hell actually is within Christianity, uh, and quite what it is, and sometimes even whether it is eternal, can be hazy. So today we're going to talk about hell. I'm going to try and explain it in simple terms and look at different Christian understandings of what hell is. I'm going to look at some of the key biblical passages uh, that support each perspective. We'll look at some of the strengths, some of the weaknesses. Uh, and, uh, but I want to just stress, guys, these are all Christian perspectives, uh, and we shouldn't allow a difference in d- doctrinal understanding or biblical interpretation to bring division to the body of Christ. So can I just encourage you, genuinely seek the Holy Spirit with where you feel uh, He is leading you in your understanding of hell, and then have conversations with others in love as we explore that. So let's pray. Father, thank you that as we will find out at the end, Lord, whatever our understanding of hell is, it's not where we want to be. Lord, and you have done everything and provided every possible means for that not to be our future. And I just thank you that you give us wisdom and open hearts. You give us humility, uh, Father, and that you would uh, anoint the words that we say today, Lord, and that you, you and all of this conversation would be glorified. Amen. Okay, let's start with the word hell itself. Uh, There are five words in Greek and Hebrew that are translated hell in the English King James Bible. Sheol and Hades are a pair. Uh, They are the same thing in Greek and in Hebrew. Uh, They both refer to the realm of the dead, and it's where everyone goes, both the righteous and the unrighteous. Even Jesus goes there. Imagery linked with Sheol include water and darkness or a trap, Uh, But with only one exception, there is no sense of fire or torment. Thankfully, modern translations of the Bible translate Sheol or Hades appropriately as the realm of the dead or the grave or the pit. Uh, But clearly, it's not hell in the modern imagination. Tartarus is the next word, and it appears only once in the Bible. Uh, Tartarus is actually the ancient Greek uh, belief that Tartarus was a lower Hades for rebellious gods. Uh, And Peter takes up this word, and he just used it to describe a place of spiritual confinement for spiritual beings who have rebelled against God. And he says they are held in chains of darkness to await judgment. Despite this, most popular English translations still use hell or deep hell or lowest hell in this passage, which doesn't really help. Uh, Regardless, though, there is no sense of fire or torment, and it is not a place for humans. Which leaves just one pair of words. Again, it's henum in Hebrew and Gehenna in Greek. And these are, again, referring to the same thing. 
This is a literal geographic location, the valley directly to the south of Jerusalem. Now, in Jesus' time, it served as the city rubbish dump. But more than that, centuries earlier, the Israelites had worshipped the false god Moloch and even sacrificed their children to him in the valley. And because such a detestable sin had been committed, God cursed the valley of Hinnom and Gehenna through the prophet Jeremiah. He said it would be a scene of horror, void of joy, ever linked with God's judgment for worshipping evil. Uh, and as the city dump, it contained dead animals and sewage and rubbish and vermin and fires burned to keep the smell down. Gehenna is the word uh, that is still translated hell in the New Testament, and it appears 12 times. James says, the tongue can be set on fire by Gehenna, meaning that we can use our words to bring death and curse. The other 11 times are all used by Jesus. They're recorded over three Gospels, and if we allow for double-ups, where more than one Gospel records the same thing, or where Jesus says Gehenna repeatedly in the same little speech, he actually only refers to hell four times in the Bible. And they are these. Whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty to go into Gehenna. It is better for you that one part of your body perish than for your whole body to go be thrown into Gehenna. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both life and body in Gehenna. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of Gehenna? And that's it. Peter never mentions Gehenna. The word hell is not in the book of Acts or in any of the Apostle Paul's letters. Uh, it's also worth noting that every time Jesus uses the word Gehenna, he is speaking to a Jewish audience. People who know the context of Gehenna as both a physically horrible place and yet also linked with God's judgment for rejecting him and embracing evil. So Jesus is referring to something, but it's not very specific as to what. It's something horrific, deathly, seemingly in this physical life, and yet it's also rejected, uh, linked with the rejection of God and worshipping evil. Perhaps most clearly seen in Mark chapter 9, Gehenna is the perfect metaphor that Jesus uses with his Jewish audience to symbolize what opposition to the kingdom of God is really like. And it's not pleasant. But if we want to better understand what hell is then, we need to look beyond just the word. And we will quickly discover that the Bible has many passages that refer to the punishment of the wicked. And it uses strong and even terrifying language like sulfur or lakes of fire, worms and unquenchable flames, outer darkness, without using that word hell. And together, these passages have been interpreted in three distinct ways. And they're well illustrated by this um, hell triangle graphic uh, produced by RethinkingHell.com. And I would just say, if you want to do more research into this, uh, that is a website I would highly recommend, RethinkingHell.com. Uh, it is conditionalist, which we'll look at in a sec, uh, but it's worth looking at. So those three models today then are traditionalism, also known as eternal conscious torment, conditionalism, also known as annihilationism, and universalism, also known as universal reconciliation. Before we consider them, though, it's important that we understand what the Bible says will happen at the end times because the view that wicked people die and immediately go to hell is not biblical. Daniel 12, 
John 5, Acts 24, 1 Corinthians 15, and other passages refer to the resurrection of all people when Jesus returns, both the just and the unjust. Christ will then sit on his glorious throne and bring the final judgment. Some will be called blessed and invited into the kingdom prepared by God before the foundation of the world, while others will be condemned to depart into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This is when the unjust will pass into hell, sometimes called the second death. Now, to help us visualize what these various hells would look like, um, I brought someone along to help me out with it. Yes. Uh, Say hello, thank you, to Captain Hook. Now, we all know Captain Hook is wicked. And for the purpose of today's message, he has adamantly and willfully rejected Jesus. He has lived a life pursuing wealth, plundering, killing lost boys, abusing his power and his crew, and and has kidnapped children and other bad things. So he is a very bad man. He is unrighteous. He is wicked. So what happens to him at final judgment? We'll start with impaling him. And... uh, That's as dark as the humor gets today, by the way. You're going to be all right. Okay. Traditionalism. We'll get to Captain Hook in a moment. Traditionalism is the view that most people will be familiar with. In this, hell is a place of eternal conscious suffering and torment because, to quote John Piper, God is infinitely angry with those in hell forever. Scriptures used to support it include... He will gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. Perhaps the most pivotal verse uh, for eternal conscious torment is found in Revelation 14, when the beast and all those who follow in its way are finally condemned. It says, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Traditionalists also draw evidence from Luke chapter 16, where Jesus told the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. In this passage, the rich man is described as being in torment and yet able to see a poor man called Lazarus with Abraham. The rich man cries out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Here they say Jesus is describing a scene in hell. So to summarize this view, regarding evil at the end times, traditionalism teaches that evil will be restrained. It will be locked up and punished forever. Captain Hook, if this is true, would be in torment, eternal conscious pain. Because he terrorized Neverland for 30 years, he will burn, gnash teeth, cry out for water, and experience every possible torment day and night for millions and millions and millions of years without end. The strength of the traditional view is mostly its longevity. Eternal conscious torment is the longest and most widely held understanding of hell, and at least in the European and the Western churches, it reflects orthodox doctrine. But its great weakness is how it conflicts with God's character. God desires that none should perish, and he takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. Condemning your children to eternal torture is both unloving and unjust. If we wouldn't do that, why would a perfectly loving God? 
And since sin committed in this life is finite, how is infinite punishment fair? The traditionalist response to those say that, well, God's righteous justice is perfect and ours is not. Ours is limited, so we should trust his justice as being correct, not ours. Names that you might know that support this traditional view include John Piper, John MacArthur, Bill Weiss, and Mark Driscoll. Let's look at conditionalism. This is the second model, conditionalism. Here, place is, uh, hell is a place of undoing, where the unjust are destroyed or annihilated. They cease to exist. Conditionalists use many of the same verses that the traditionalists do, but they have a different emphasis. The punishment is eternal in its effect, not eternal in its duration. Essentially, it is eternal punishment, not eternal punishing. They say it is the flame that is everlasting and unquenchable, not the suffering of those in it. Conditionalists stress that fire burns completely. You wouldn't put a log in a flame and expect to find it still burning even a day later. It would be ash, never to return. Sometimes words like phrase, uh, phrases like destruction or uh, nothing will be left is explicit in the scriptures, but usually it's just implied. A key illustration they use is found in Peter and Jude. They say, if God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And in Jude it says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Jesus made similar comparisons in Matthew. Now, no one claims that Sodom and Gomorrah are still burning. And they were destroyed by heavenly fire for rejecting God and embracing evil. Surely, conditionalists say, that indicates that the wicked will be extinguished. It also explains why Revelation refers to judgment as the second death. Regarding evil at the end times, conditionalism teaches that evil will be destroyed, utterly annihilated, never to return. Captain Hook would probably experience momentary pain and regret, and the annihilation process would be terrifying. But once it is complete, he will be no more. He will pass into oblivion, and it will be over. The strength of conditionalism is that it suits the imagery of fire destroying things that we see in the many parables and scriptures, uh, more accurately than eternal conscious torment does. It also reflects God's character and justice more favorably because the punishment fits the crime, both of them being finite. But what about the other passages? Well, the rich man and Lazarus is dismissed because it is a parable. It's unlikely to be an actual event. But even if it is, it takes place in Sheol or Hades, not in Gehenna. More importantly, though, it is one of four sections where Jesus is addressing the Pharisees, and he's using their own teachings of the time around Sheol and Hades to illustrate a different point. He's showing that the fortunes of the wealthy and the poor will be reversed in death, and that even if someone were to raise from the dead, which is the rich man's plea, uh, they still would not believe. Shortly after this parable, Jesus really did raise a man from the dead called Lazarus. And the Pharisees responded not by believing, but by plotting to kill him. Biblical commentators therefore stress that this story is not to be taken literally, and it shouldn't be viewed as an exposition of hell. What about Revelation 14? Well, it's important to note that the whole book is apocryphal literature. It uses dense symbolism. Few people would believe that the beast is a literal prostitute with Babylon written on her head, drinking blood while riding a ten-horned monster. 
Why then do we assume that her followers would literally be burning in sulfur forever in perpetual torment? The description of the wicked burning before the Lamb also conflicts with passages like Matthew 25, Jude 13, and 2 Thessalonians, which describe the wicked being eternally shut out from God's presence. So when taken in context, there's a lot of alternative interpretations of what Revelation 14 is referring to, uh, and it's probably a bad reading to just apply it wholesale to anybody in hell. So we've done two models here. Let's compare traditional and conditional, because they share a lot of common ground. They both agree that salvation in Jesus is a choice and that ultimately the righteous will receive eternal life while the unrighteous will perish. But what is the key difference? It is the perspective of the human soul. Traditionalists believe that all humans have an eternal soul and must therefore pass either into eternal life or eternal punishment. Conditionalists, as the name comes from, say that the eternal soul is conditional, that eternal life is the gift of God. They say if we already had it, it wouldn't be a gift. And since those who reject God do not receive this gift, they therefore do not live eternally and are annihilated. Now, the weakness of conditionalism concerns the resurrection of the unjust. All the biblical descriptions of the resurrection are to a glorious, immortal, indestructible body of which Jesus is the first example. If the unjust are resurrected yet headed to annihilation, their body can't be the same, but there is no suggestion of an alternative. Names that you may know who support the conditional view of hell include John Stott, Edward Fudge, Francis Chan, and Preston Sprinkle. The third understanding of hell is quite radically different. Essentially, there is no hell, at least not in the eternal sense, since everyone will ultimately be reconciled to God. Universalists argue that both the traditional and the conditional teachings are toxic. They paint God as a villain, and to quote Rob Bell, they subvert the contagious spread of Jesus' message of love, peace, forgiveness, and joy that our world desperately needs to hear. Universalists agree with traditionalists that all humans have an, an immortal soul, but they argue that God's love is bigger, even than the human capacity to resist him. Therefore, no matter how long it takes, every sinner uh, will ultimately reach a place where they recognize their need for God, they repent, and they are saved. Whatever time people spend resisting God in this life and the next is the only type of hell there is. Now, where do they get this from? Universalism bases its belief on big biblical themes, such as that the Bible regularly refers to all things and all creation being redeemed. And they say, well, then that must include the unrighteous. Uh, the Bible says that evil will no longer exist at new creation. And they say, well, then how could hell continue? Will people choose evil over God? Uh, that the saving work of Jesus was complete. And they say, well, did Jesus undo all the damage caused by sin or only some of it? And this idea that Jesus came as a human representing all of humanity and died and resurrected on behalf of all humanity. Some specific verses that support universalism include, and all people will see God's salvation, but as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all. One of the pivotal, pivotal passages for universalism is in Revelation 21 and 22. 
And it, uh, it seems that this is happening after the final judgment and the destruction of evil, and it's when new Jerusalem and new creation has been established. And it says, On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Universalists claim that in this scene, those who reject God's kingdom seem to still exist outside the city, but the city gates are always open, and the option is always there to wash their robes. In summary, regarding evil in the end times, universalism teaches that evil will be converted, that all things will be redeemed. Captain Hook would probably continue in his selfish, wicked, pillaging ways, however he can in this and the next life, but God's love for him is inexhaustible. And one day, however many centuries it may take, Hook will raise his eyes to the heavenly city, acknowledge his sins and repent, and call on Jesus to save him. And he will then be purged from his unrighteousness and enter New Jerusalem. The strength of universalism is that it aligns with God's perfect love and righteous justice because all sin and evil is conquered by Jesus' loving sacrifice. Also, God's sovereignty and power is complete. Universalists say the other views say that God does all he can, but ultimately gives up on his children and allows torment or annihilation. But it certainly has its problems. Universalism is considered by some to be too liberal to even be a Christian understanding of hell, and they object to its inclusion as a valid model. It makes a weak case when dealing with a very large number of judgment passages seen previously. Mostly, universalists appeal to the big things of Scripture, as we've seen, that tell the story of redemption, but they forget the other big theme of Scripture, which tells a story of separation. Think about the wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goats, the good fish, the bad fish, the wise and the foolish virgins, the faithful and the wicked servants, the guests at the divine feast, and so on and so on. What about the heavenly city? The claim that Revelation 21 to 22 is chronological, depicting sinners outside a New Jerusalem city with the ability to repent, it doesn't seem to fit the context. Rather, Revelation is saying that people here and now in this life have the ability to wash their robes so that they can be part of the New Jerusalem. Those who are wicked in the here and now will find themselves outside the city. In other words, hell. As for this reliance on the big meta-narrative themes, Preston Sprinkle cautions the use of logic over direct scriptural evidence as any basis for a model of hell. He says, The debate about the duration of hell must stick very close to the text and not try to solve the question by theological formulations where we try and figure out what hell must be like based on what we think God is like. Still, names you may know who support a universalist view of hell include Rob Bell, Peter Rollins, David Bentley Hart, and Robin Parry. These three categories then, traditionalist, conditionalist, and universalist, summarize the varied beliefs that Christians can hold towards hell. And in case your mind is oversaturated, let me simplify. Traditional, eternal conscious torment of the wicked. Conditional is the annihilation of the wicked. Universal, even the wicked will one day be saved. You guys doing okay? Yeah, okay. You got enough mental space for one more? Okay, good, because this is my favorite one. 
There is one more, however. Uh, sitting somewhere between traditionalism and conditionalism, which I think is worth exploring, and it is called dehumanization. Let's <laughs> take a little break. Dehumanization includes the immortality of the soul and the containment of evil, but at the same time, it involves the annihilation of what it means to be human. It agrees that salvation is a choice and that the result will either be separation from or unity with God. However, rather than, it, rather than eternal conscious torment, classically affiliated with God's judgment, this is a hell of people's own choosing. Dehumanization is a shrinking of personhood, a rejection of being God's image bearer, where people become so self-absorbed, so loving of freedom, so adamant on their own way, that ultimately, God gives them over to what they desire, total independence from him. It is the opposite of embracing Jesus and to quote Lewis, becoming more human in him than you ever succeeded in becoming on earth. Like universalism, dehumanization relies mostly on big meta-narrative themes than individual scriptures. Humanity is created in God's image, but we rejected our image-bearing gift through sin. All creation is groaning as a result. But Jesus came as the true human. He invited us to become like him by choosing him instead of self. And then when we contribute towards the restoration of all creation, we are finally given fully alive, resurrected bodies, and we shall be like him again. There are a few verses that suggest dehumanization, however, uh, such as, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. In Job 20, to paraphrase a few verse, uh, verses, it says, Though evil is sweet in his mouth and he hides it under his tongue, though he cannot bear to let it go and it lingers in his mouth, yet his food will turn sour in his stomach. It will become the venom of serpents within him. Terrors will come over him. Total darkness lies in wait for his treasures. A fire unfanned will consume him and devour what is left in his tent. The heavens will expose his guilt. The earth will rise up against him. Such is the fate God allots the wicked. Most significantly, though, Paul seems to describe dehumanization in Romans chapter 1. Now, it's a familiar passage for other reasons, so I've edited it a little bit uh, to, keep, to help you try and read it freshly through a new lens of dehumanization. So, verses 18 to 32 say... When I say edited, I don't mean I changed any of the wording. It is the same. I just took other bits out that are unhelpful. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. For although they knew God, they never glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And therefore God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts and to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil, disobey their parents, have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. But it seems that they're pushing this way. God kind of lets them go and hands them over to what they're wanting, and they spiral. Gregory Boyd describes humanization as a moment where God essentially takes his hands off and removes his life-sustaining force once people pass a point of no return. In Surprised by Hope, 
N.T. Wright rejects the idea of eternal conscious torment because he says it conflicts with God's character and new creation. He describes it like a concentration camp in beautiful countryside or a torture dungeon in the middle of a palace of delights. Wright argues that people can willfully reject God through their lifestyle and choices and participate in their own dehumanization and eroding away of the image-bearing quality gradually becoming something other than human, what he calls appropriately beings that once were human but now are not. I'll let him explain. In three, two, one. The word hell has had a checkered career in the history of the church, and it wasn't hugely important in the early days. It was important but not nearly as important as it became in the Middle Ages. And in the Middle Ages, you get this polarization of heaven over here and hell over there and you've got to go to one place or the other eventually. So you have the Sistine Chapel um, with that great thing behind the altar, this enormous great judgment scene with the, the souls going off in these different directions. Very interestingly, I was sitting in the Sistine Chapel just a few weeks ago. I was sitting for a service and I was sitting next to a Greek Orthodox Archimandrite who said to me, looking at the pictures of Jesus on one wall, he said, these I can understand. And the pictures of Moses on the other wall, he said, those I can understand. Then he pointed at the end wall, the judgment. He said, that I cannot understand. He said, that's how you in the West have talked about judgment and heaven and hell. He said, we have never done it that way because the Bible doesn't do it that way. I thought, whoops, I think he's right, actually. And whether you're Catholic or Protestant, that scenario, which is etched into the consciousness of Western Christianity, really has to be shaken about a bit. Because if heaven and earth are to join together, it's not a matter of leaving earth and going to heaven. It's heaven and earth being joined together. And then hell is what happens when human beings say to the God in whose image they were made, we don't want to worship you. We don't want our human life to be shaped by worshipping you. We don't want who we are as humans to be transformed by the love of Jesus dying and rising for us. We don't want any of that. We want to stay as we are and do our own thing. And if you do that, what you're saying is you want to stop being an image-bearing human being within this good world that God has made. And you are colluding with your own progressive dehumanization. And that is such a shocking and horrible thing that it's not surprising that, again, the biblical writers and others have used very vivid and terrifying language about it. But many people have, again, picked that up and said... This is a literal description of reality. And somewhere down there, there is a, a lake of fire and it's got worms in it and it's got serpents and, and demons and, and they're, out, they're coming to get you. And I think actually the reality is more sober and sad than that, which is this progressive shrinking of human life. And that happens during this life. But it seems to me if somebody resolutely says to God, I, I'm not going to worship you. And it's not just not coming to church. It's a matter of deep down somewhere there is a rejection of the good creator God, then that is the choice that humans make. In other words, I think human choices in this life really matter. We're not just playing a game of chess where tomorrow morning God will put the pieces back on the board and say, okay, that was just a game, now we're doing something different. Um, The choices we make here really do matter. There's part of me that would love to be a universalist and say, it'll be all right, everyone will get there in the end. Um, I actually think the choices we make in the present are more important than that. Yeah, Tolkien characterized dehumanization with Gollum. 
a creature called Smeagol, who began as a happy, healthy hobbit with friends and community, but evil takes a hold of him. And gradually, over time, his obsession with the ring uh, transforms him into something other than a hobbit, until he is so corrupted by darkness, he no longer even remembers his name. C.S. Lewis portrays similar ideas in his novel, The Great Divorce, and his book, The Problem of Pain. To quote Lewis, he says, there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without the self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find, and to those who knock, it will be opened. Joe Rigney wrote a book in what C.S. Lewis believed about hell, and he summarized Lewis' position as this. Hell is an everlasting ruin, a decay, a crumbling, a retreating into yourself, a loss of all rationality and joy, a plunging into misery. But it is a self-plunging. It's a gnawing, an ache. It's oriented inward, downward, into the abyss. So, Captain Hook is well on his way. He's already been creating a hell in his own life. Through his misery, he's called others and his obsessive selfishness and sin. At death, God finally removes his hands from Hook's life, and any last vestige of God's image falls away, leaving Hook utterly consumed by his wickedness, a pithy shadow or a skulking creature that is no longer human. Personally, I find dehumanization to be the most convincing of all the perspectives. For one thing, I want to join any team that's backed by C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Tim Keller, Greg Boyd, and N.T. Wright. <laughs> Specifically, though, I see it fits the biblical narrative of redemption with any, uh, where any heart turned to Jesus would find salvation, while it also allows separation. It aligns with God's perfect love and perfect justice because people get what they deeply desire. I think a godless, golem-like existence worthy of all the terrifying language that we see in Scripture, and it aligns with the destruction passages since it involves the loss, even the annihilation, of what it means to really be human and image-bearer. To me, whatever shadow of existence, what C.S. Lewis calls remains, passes into eternity without love, peace, service, joy, contentment, or any other characteristic of God, to be completely given over to our sin nature is as horrifying as any image the Bible authors can conjure. The weakness of this view, uh, argue, uh, the critics sorry, argue that the rejection of God is the, not the punishment, but the sin which should be punished. And they point out that the separation examples that we see with the foolish virgins and the busy wedding guests and the goats, they say the unrighteous are surprised and they're mournful and they're gnashing teeth and lamenting. They say hell is not locked from the inside. They say condemnation is the decision of the judge, not the condemned. So in acknowledgement of this, Wright and others accept that a moment might come at which the wicked are aware of what is happening to them and be grief-stricken at the loss which they are about to experience. But there is still a distinct lack of direct scripture verses that support dehumanization. And biblical support really kind of has to be sewn together from various places in big overall themes. So to conclude, your, version, your view of hell can be determined by your own convictions and the guiding of the Holy Spirit. There are Jesus-loving Christians who passionately follow him and try and stay faithful to scripture who believe in every one of these categories. So it's not a salvation issue. Whatever seems to align most with you doesn't change the fact that one thing is clear and it unites every view. 
Hell is the absence of God. There are no good options here. To exist without him, whether temporary, terminal, or eternal, whether intentionally, consciously, or in ignorance, it's a horrifying prospect. Psalm 34 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Isaiah said, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God for he will freely pardon. Whatever hell is like, you don't want to go there. You don't have to go there. The invitation is here today to embrace Jesus and partner with him in the redemption of creation. To become more like him through the transforming work of his spirit. And when the years of your life are spent, to meet him face to face and yet already know him. Thanks so much for joining us for today's message. We hope and pray that it's been most helpful. If you are keen to find out a little bit more about us as a church whanau or you'd like to touch base, then you can go to coast.org.nz and there you'll find information about our in-person services, online services, various resources and activities. Enjoy the day and be blessed.